I'm David Mosscrop. Welcome to Open to Debate. For decades, we've heard about the rise of China. A major historical and contemporary power, the country shapes domestic and global politics, as Canada knows quite well. And yet, coverage of China, its affairs, and its international relations is often hyperbolic, skewed, and incomplete. A new book from a veteran reporter on China-Canada relations adds depth, rigor, and new perspectives to that coverage. So, how should we think about China's place in the world? My guest on this episode of Open to Debate is Joanna Chu, senior reporter with the Toronto Star and author of China Unbound: A New World Disorder. Okay, let's start by getting listeners acquainted with your book,、uh, China Unbound. A new world disorder.、Uh, what's your sen- what's the central thesis? Give us the sort of overview of of what the argument is about the book. Yeah, so the book's aims are, you know, very broad.、Um, I'm aware that especially during a pandemic, people don't have a lot of time、um, for reading nonfiction,、um, even if they would really like to. But China, wherever you live in the world, is a huge part of many countries.、Um, Realities and a lot of a big part of many people's individual lives, whether it's at work or personal.、Um, so I wanted to write one book that covers the main, central, big issues to do with China all over the world, so that it's one book people can read and get a lot more in-depth knowledge than what they can glean from reading daily headlines. Not to disparage what reporters do, because I've been a reporter for ten years and filing hundreds of stories from China or on China. But you kind of need a book to provide more of that、uh, context, the historical context, and also the cross-country comparisons. So it's looking at major questions like the. Subtitle is a new world disorder, and I don't want people to think that it is Beijing singularly going around and messing things up all over the world.、Um, I look at how different Western societies、uh, often have equal blame in、um, and complicity in the kind of disorderly. Situation we have、uh, with a lot of China issues today, whether it's human rights, such as what's happening in Xinjiang or in Hong Kong, the really quick crackdown on civil society there,、um, or、uh, China's global influence and intimidation campaigns to basically try to. Um, co-opt、uh, people in power, politicians included, Canadian politicians included, to to be friends of China, or to when that doesn't work, to use more of the strong arm of the Chinese police、um, to intimidate its critics, even foreign nationals、um, who are expressing themselves and their opinions about China all over the world.、Um, this is something that a lot of people are kind of are semi-aware of, but I argue that. There's actually so much material and so many people、um, whose testimonies that we can study,、um, uh, case studies that we can look at to to try to address、uh, some of these concrete issues with some concrete policies、um, instead of kind of giving in. Into some of the tendencies around China discourse, I think you and I have talked about where people can really exaggerate one side or the other. It's as if people separate into two more extreme camps,、mm-hmm. um, 
and aren't. But I argue that just focusing on the facts and focusing on the primary sources, like the people involved um, who are often willing to speak and who did speak with me in the book um, is is kind of good enough. Like we don't need to exaggerate and embellish or make up things about China that in particularly in the U.S., like many politicians do, like often they just make things up. Um, so I really tried to lay it all out in one book. So looking at Western China relations, different countries, North America, Europe, and Australia, which I all visited. Um, the first part of the book draws on my experiences as a correspondent in Beijing and Hong Kong. And then it goes into my experiences in Canada, where, you know, the Meng Wanzhou issue blew up in front of my face, and I had no choice but to cover the issue. Um, and then I, you know, deliberately <laughs> traveled to around Europe uh, and Australia and worked with journalists in Russia to provide those cross-country comparisons so that we're not all just kind of stuck in our own media spheres. Well, I want to. It makes me think of that old line that you know the media is the first draft of history, right? I mean, and, and I think that's one of the things that makes the book important is that you know, and and other other books that take on similar subjects is that um, it's a, what we you know do in the media. Uh, you do proper reporting, I do columns, but you know, <laughs> you know, you do the real work, and I do the 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 peanut gallery work, but it's a it's ephemeral for one and you you know it's like you say it's it's in a very particular context but not a global context or a comparative context or a long-term context and so you know I, it, there's a lot of value i think in being able to pull this all together and put it in context and to and to put something on the shelf that'll last a little longer and i want to get into a little bit about how you did that um, before then we'll get into geopolitics and, and substantive mm -hmm. stuff but i'm curious how you researched the book what the process was and especially about who you interviewed uh, and how you chose those particular individuals, because there are a lot of people saying a lot about China. Mm -hmm. And I'm always curious about, okay, well, the question is, who do we listen to and why that person? I'm curious how you put that together. Yeah, so it was definitely a more daunting project than I could have ever imagined <laughs> taking on. I wouldn't have picked this book of this scope for myself. Um, it was unusual because my publishing path um, I was approached by House of Anansi, um, Canada's largest independent publisher, which has kind of like a mission to discover new authors. I was approached by them to write this book, and it was a, you know, a big geopolitical book, basically look at everything. And mm -hmm. <laughs> some of the first editorial meetings, I just went away feeling really overwhelmed because my editor was so enthusiastic about bringing in so much Um like, basically, you know, there's so much that's interesting about China in the news. Um, she wanted answers, like the context or everything. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, and, you know, I used my reporter's set of skills to try to, you know, do a map of um, how to research this book. So I think I kind of... Um, excel when I actually get to meet people and go to places... Um, I think most people do. It's hard to really, you know, challenge your own biases and perspectives when you're just alone mm -hmm. um, and deciding who to call on the phone. Um, so I partnered with journalists all around the world um, to to do the research, mostly in 2019. Um, I used up all my vacation time <laughs> from the newspaper. Uh, <laughs> so likely some of these places are also fun to visit, like Greece and 
Italy and Turkey, you know, can't complain <laughs> definitely about going there um, for weeks. Um, in Australia, I doubled, um, did double duty where I also spoke at a conference that was multi-city. So I went to uh, Sydney, Canberra and Melbourne um, and was able to kind of combine, you know, speaking with people and also doing research. Um, and definitely... You know, some of the advice I got from writers is like, look for like central motifs and themes and questions that keep coming up again and again, and kind of in the writing process, try to subtly pose them to the reader without giving all the answers right away. Um, so people want to kind of be along for the journey. It's also kind of a subtle travelogue. Um, I don't want it to look like geopolitical tourism, um, which is a risk of this kind of format where I'm going around talking to all sorts of different people in different countries. Um, but I do want the book to be as readable and engaging as possible. And I think that semi-travelogue format helps with that because, especially because we've mostly been stuck in our homes for so long <laughs> during the pandemic, it's kind of novel. Like for me, even it's like novel to reread chapters where I actually went places right. <laughs> and got off the plane and, um, you know, set off to meetings. Um, I think that part is almost enjoyable. Um, and for people in North America, I think particularly hearing from perspectives in Europe, uh, where in places like Italy, there's been so much like anti-American sentiment that quite a few people um, were actually cheering on what Beijing was doing, like the ongoing U.S.-China trade war. A lot of people were like, well, finally someone's standing up to the U.S., to Washington. Uh, I don't agree with what China's doing with human rights, but I think uh, China's right to try to be more assertive um, mm -hmm. and to want to be a second superpower um, challenging American hegemony. So that was really interesting. Um, as far as choosing characters, um, partly one of my goals it was to platform, spotlight the voices of women and um, people of the Chinese diaspora as well as Chinese citizens because and people of color because um, as someone who was a young reporter and young woman, um, of Chinese descent, starting in China, um, you you see how you know those kind of the people who were in power in these fields, China watching fields, who get invited to events are often um, men and middle aged or older men who have these like fancy tenured university positions and all of these book deals, um, and. At the same time, I looked around and there were lots of young women, lots of people of color doing really, really groundbreaking new research, not even getting invited to these forums. Um, so it, before the book, it was kind of my personal mission. And I got together with a group of people to found new voices. Um, now it's a global nonprofit that has a mission of celebrating and amplifying the work of women and minorities on China. Um, and part of it is our argument is that when you're interviewing and highlighting voices that aren't um, in the mainstream as the top, top um, pundits that everyone turns to all the time, you're naturally going to get a set of nuanced and unique and often to readers like a fresh perspective that surprise them. Um, so I was definitely continuing that vein where each place 
when I was working with uh, journalists on the ground there, I was like, who has like a personal stake in these issues? Um, who is actually doing business with China, for example? And who might be targets of um, Beijing's kind of global influence activities? Um, so I really wanted to highlight their voices and build kind of the scenes um, around people who have those actual lived experiences um, with China in, in Western countries. So, for example, um, in Greece, I spoke with um, shipbuilders who who had a stake, who who benefited often with uh, these deals Greece was making with China to a major real estate developer. I didn't necessarily agree with all of these people's views, um, but they were speaking really frankly to me. They were talking about how they don't care where the money comes from as long as it's money going into the Greek economy. Um, they're happy. Uh, one developer was saying, I don't care if it's penguins from Antarctica um, investing in Greece. Come to Greece. <laughs> right. Um, so, and as far as targets, often people have been trying to warn for decades about how China's kind of global police uh, intimidation tactics work. Definitely, there's been testimonies to Canadian Parliament from the 90s and the 2000s, but it hasn't, for some reason, it didn't reach like the level of um, more wider public attention that we're seeing today. And I, and I argue that a lot of it is because uh, China took the two Michaels hostage and they're these um, middle class or privileged white men that people identified with. Like These are victims of China's kind of authoritarian system that looks like me. Right. This could happen to me. Um, whereas in the past, for, for years, this has happened. Like There's been lots of political prisoners of Asian descent. Um, and uh, I interview refugees who are now living in Canada, um, people who, like a Hong Kong Catholic high school principal who was so harassed out of his job that he he quit his job as a principal and sought refuge in Canada, and all he did in Hong Kong was he he posed with this joke um, marathon race bib that was kind of like a satirical insult to um, Hong Kong's leader at the time. Um, he wasn't really thinking about it. He was just smiled for a photo, and a student posted a photo online um, and. Next thing you know, um, people were calling his school, calling him basically a rapist, that he was sleeping with his students, um, sending forged letters to the Ministry of Education, um, and making themselves clear um, that they were affiliated with the Chinese state and that um, he, what he was doing uh, was going to get him in trouble. So, so he left Hong Kong. So people like that, um, I try to really first verify their stories. Um, often the people I really highlight in the book are people who took documentation, whether it's photos or videos or um, recordings of these interactions. And, and then I try to tell their stories because I don't think their stories have been really um, dissected and understood um, until recently when you see um, kind of more efforts from journalists who, who do speak Chinese to do this. But I wanted to pull it together for kind of like the first time in a book. It, it makes the, the last point there about, you know, speaking Chinese makes me uh, think a little bit about, you know, British Columbia. And I remember, you know, covering politics there and just being told there's so much you're missing 
mm-hmm. uh, on, on platforms that are used by, by Chinese speakers. And there's so much you're missing because you don't speak Chinese. And, and I very much felt that. And I, you know, I can only imagine by the time you scale that up globally, how much we in the West miss because we don't have access to the sources and to the stories that you're talking about. I mean, yeah. uh, so, so I, I assume that then this has sort of created a, uh, a deeper investigation than you would have otherwise had. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, it In the conclusion of the book, one of my points is that people in the West who, who don't speak Chinese, who don't come from a Chinese culture background, often treat and talk about information in Chinese as if it were in a secret code that can't right. be broken. Um, and as someone who, you know, I had to struggle to learn my Chinese characters growing up in Canada. I went to Saturday school every weekend and like cheated on my dictation test and I wish I had it <laughs> because uh, I ended up being a reporter in in China um, and Hong Kong where I had to speak Chinese every day and no one gave me any slack because I looked Chinese. They weren't like, oh, you're just learning. Let me speak slower for you. <laughs> right. They just, you know, treated me like a Chinese person, which, you know, good and bad. Um, but yeah, there's so many stories and all of this information is a lot more out in the open. I don't even want to call myself an investigative journalist because a lot of the reports that we did, including at the Star, which were front page stories that, you know, led to major developments like um, a Liberal Party candidate resigning because she made a WeChat post that uh, seemed racist against Jagmeet Singh. All we did was translate it from Chinese into English. It wasn't investigative. Um, well, you have sources that are in the Chinese-speaking communities. They give you tips. It's just like journalism for English-speaking communities. You have sources, you have networks, and you monitor what's going on. Um, and it wasn't all that difficult. It's just that most newsrooms in Canada um, didn't really assign someone to monitor the Chinese-language press or, or social media or communities. Um, and that's really surprising because in some cities in Canada, people of Asian descent, um, in Richmond, people of Chinese descent in particular make up almost 50% of the population. Mm-hmm. So it's not exactly a niche group. It's I think it's part of actually a media responsibility to have someone dedicated, at least one person dedicated to, to these stories. Um, and often they're really interesting for one. Um, a lot of these stories, once we started doing them, they bec- they rose to the top of our webpage, like kind of effortlessly because they were so kind of different. Um, but also it's important because there's a human rights element. There's people in Canada who are opening the door and Chinese officials are there trying to silence them because they were speaking out in Canada um, on issues related to China. Um, and because I was clued into these issues, I started collecting these stories, and they happen all around the world. Sometimes It's mostly been people of the diaspora, because as I explained in the book, China kind of has this paternalistic um, mindset where anyone with any kind of Chinese blood is like Chinese, and often they would reject people's foreign citizenships. Right. Um, in cases of some Hong Kong booksellers who uh, had dual citizenships, they ended up in Chinese jails, um, the foreign consulates were denied access to them. So there's this view that, you know, you belong to China if you're, you know, descended from China in any way. So there's a human rights element of these people are kind of being intimidated, even though they are completely foreign nationals living all over the world. But um, 
it's not even that they're speaking only in Chinese. They're they're warning, you know, the wider public in English. But I think there's some veins of racism and xenophobia that when these things happen to minority groups, that it doesn't. It's not like a bigger issue that we should all be concerned about. Um, I think that's kind of like an ugly truth that right. does seem pretty apparent um, when you compare the attention that two Michaels received compared to people like Canadian uh, Hussein Salil, who's been in prison in China since 2006. Um, and he was actually one of those people who were kidnapped. He was actually visiting Uzbekistan. Um, he didn't step foot in China, but, um, you know, Uzbekistan grabbed him and sent him to China. Um, people like that, um, people like a Canadian permanent residence uh, who who also has been in China for decades. Um, so I think, you know, as someone who comes from a Chinese background, I was born in Hong Kong. Those stories were just top of my mind and also interesting to me. Um, and interesting to readers, like once me and my colleagues started reporting on them. Um, so definitely it's not things that are inaccessible. And even things I translate in the book, um, questions about what does China want. Um, there are actually Chinese government documents saying, detailing Beijing's ambitions for a new world order um, that is kind of suited to its own interests. And they're in Chinese, but easily translatable. Um, right. And that provides information that policymakers can use and have. But assessing each country's level of China expertise and advisors, government advisors, the China knowledge is very shallow. Um, even in the new Biden administration, um, basically the ambassador, the secretary of state, all these major cabinet uh, and senior positions no one has significant China experience. And you would think the U.S. of all countries would prioritize that since it's it spent the Trump years like so focused on this, you know, coming conflict with China that China was going to um, threaten U.S. interests. You'd think that there'd be some um, attention paid to who was in government and uh, what kind of level of China knowledge they have, but it doesn't exist. Um, in the Canada chapter, I provided an anecdote that some people told me um, where when this whole saga crisis with Huawei and Meng Wanzhou um, exploded at a Privy Council office meeting, um, the senior clerk said, where are the F are the China people? They were assembled in a room and he looked around and said, where are the China people? Where are the experts? Um, so so I kind of want to hold that up <laughs> kind of as mm -hmm. a mirror of what's happening and that's so common across Western countries and academics people tell me that it is kind of a symptom of kind of Western arrogance um, that they could extract and get all the economic benefits from China without having to invest in really understanding the country and its motivations and the political sides of China. Oh, I want to get into that a bit now and dive a little bit deeper into the geopolitics of, of, the, of the issue of, of the book. Where do you see China seeing itself fit into the global paradigm and where does it want to be? Is that you mentioned hegemony earlier? Is the goal hegemony? Is it a multipolar world? And to what end? I mean, in the book, for instance, uh, One Belt, One Road comes up a lot. That seems central to the, mm -hmm. to the, the project. Uh, although the question is, is that an imperial project or is that an assistance project or is that both? Mm -hmm. uh, you know, can you take yeah. us through that? 
Yeah. So firstly, um, what I mentioned about these documents that talk about China's ambitions. Um, so China has been trumpeting this idea of democracy among nations. But to China, democracy doesn't mean that each country is democratic or that it you know, respects civil society voices, but that each country, regardless of its governance type, has equal footing on global organizations like the United Nations, and that other countries or the UN doesn't have a right to interfere or comment on its internal uh, situations. So it's something that it's it's not only proud of, but it wants to change a global system where you don't get the UN talking and making statements on human rights of other countries, that each country, um, you know, Iran, Iraq, Saudi Arabia, they're, they're all, North Korea, they're all equal on the world stage, um, and that these democracies, um, you know, shouldn't have this kind of moral um, superiority over countries that... Uh, are authoritarian where there right. isn't rule of law. Um, and that's kind of compelling to many places and not only non-democratic countries. Like I said, in Italy, a lot of people who their primary concern is being wary and resentful of the U.S. Um, so they see it as kind of welcome that Beijing is rising up and is being more assertive on a world stage and that it will act as a counterbalance to American power. And at the same time... Um, China calls out a lot of these Western countries for being hypocritical, that it, China every year um, puts out these white papers assessing the U.S. human rights record. And actually, when I've actually read these papers, they're very accurate. <laughs> it's, right. it's, they're citing things that happen in the U.S., like its um, prison system, its um, treatment of minorities, um, you know, of... The experiences of black Americans, I mean, that in itself, um, I think no one can deny that it's pretty atrocious and it's on par with atrocities happening all over the world. So I think a lot of people see this and feel compelled by what some of what China is saying. So that definitely helps. Um, but then it's happening amid where a, it's happening in the context where China doesn't want to replace global institutions. It doesn't want the UN to disintegrate. Um, actually, it's been moving to play a more prominent role on the UN and other global organizations. Um, it, China has a rights on the UN's uh, Human Rights Council. Mm -hmm. um, and you wonder how that happens and what the implications are. Um, but China kind of wants to kind of gradually push for a world order where their status quo isn't going to be continually challenged by other countries. And is, is you know, for instance, part of that obviously is things like moral suasion. That seems, you know, the Human Rights Report's a good example of that. Uh, but, uh, you know, part of it is obviously economic as well. I mean, One Belt, One Road is mm -hmm. plainly yeah. part of, is part of that influence. And, you know, you mentioned earlier your interview in, in Greece. I mean, money talks, right? And and I wonder to what extent, I mean, w when you think about that program, for instance, how do you think about it? Is it an, imper is it an imperial project? Is it an investment mm -hmm. project? Uh, you know, because again, we look back at the history of the 20th century and I don't want to, uh, you know, imply a, a moral equivalence, but plainly the United yeah. States has been undertaking similar projects and often in some cases mm -hmm. much more violent and nasty ways. So I'm curious yeah. how you assess uh, that, for instance. Mm -hmm. Like, 
I talk about some of the subtle measures that China uses in its United Front programs to, you know, build influence around the world. A lot of that is completely legal activities, like offering these lower level politicians these all expenses paid VIP trips to China. Um, right. Several, like several BC politicians have been over the moon to go on these trips, and then you know they get toured around, like go to banquets, um, and then later, um, you know. Their photos end up in these propaganda stories aimed at, you know, international and domestic audiences about how, you know, China and their Canadian friends, you know, agree on all of these issues, um, and or Canadian politicians are speaking to Chinese state media outlets about Huawei, about how um, Canada welcome or their city welcomes it, but then. This story is twisted so that it's they exaggerate the role of a more lower level politician to make it seem like uh, Canada in general welcomes Huawei. You know, right. um, a lot of this happens in like an unwitting kind of way, where because of the lack of China knowledge and the focus on economic and trade with China, a lot of politicians play into political goals of Beijing. Um, and a lot of these political goals, I try to explain in the beginning of the book. Um, it's kind of like inside-outside. Um, it wants uh, foreign power and influence uh, in large part because it wants to um, kind of satisfy and appeal to domestic audiences in China. Right. Um, people are becoming more nationalistic. They're also becoming a little bit more impatient or um, critical of China's policies uh, for inter the internal domestic economy, which has been kind of slowing down and struggling in many sectors. Um, so it wants to have this like robust global role. And part of that is using its economic clout. Um, so when the new Silk Road, Belt and Road project started, you know, becoming a thing, I was in China. To me, it sounded like basically a PR campaign to slap a label on China's global infrastructure investments that were already taking place all over the world. Um, so it didn't seem back then like a clear political motivations it sounded like you know political in the sense that china was powerful and had all this money and it was going to um open up and strengthen trade routes um, which has an obvious benefit for chinese companies and goods um i think in the west some some of it new silk road is too often kind of portrayed as almost like a charity project where right. Beijing is providing right. all of his investment for free, um, you know, as like donations basically to struggling economies. And that's not the case. I think China definitely wants to make sure that it has control and influence over key trade routes, over key shipping routes. Parts of the South China Sea are contested by its Southeast Asian neighbors. Um, it, it, China wants to have uh, through investment in place things like airports, ports, trains, highways. Um, this is good for Chinese companies and China's economy. So it's not just a one-way, all about political domination endeavor. Um, but definitely people are worried about the political ramifications. Um, in, in Definitely when Italy signed up for the new Silk Road, being uh, more of a major European country, there was a lot of backlash. Uh, from Germany, from the UK, uh, from France, who said Italy was kind of acting out of order, kind of on its own, um, rather than providing a more united front from European countries so that they could have more pressure on China um, to challenge things that have long been um, points of conflict, like China's uh, 
lack of mark, free market reforms and his protectionism towards its companies. Um, these other European powers felt that Italy was kind of selling out the rest of the EU bloc by kind of making these deals of China directly. Um, whereas in Greece, I think because Greece, the economy was struggling so much, I don't think even those major powers expected Greece to kind of be like part of the negotiating party um, with China on these issues. Um, and when China, a state-owned company, took over the Port of Piraeus in Athens, um, afterwards, uh, Greece has used its vote on international organizations like the UN to stand with Beijing. Um, in the summer of 2016, Athens stopped the European Union from issuing a statement against Beijing's aggression in the South China Sea. And then a year after that, Athens surprised the world again by vetoing a high-profile EU criticism of human rights abuses in China. And that was the first time the bloc um, tabled and failed to pass such a statement to the Human Rights Council. Um, so... In Greece, I was talking to people like, "Is there was there strings attached to the Port of Piraeus takeover?" Um, and a lot of people felt who were you know very well connected in government say they're not aware that there was actually it was laid out that clearly from China. It wasn't like we're going to help you with this port. You're going to um, veto all of these statements at UN. Um, I think people largely felt the Greek government was genuinely grateful and had kind of done this um, out of its own, like, decision-making <laughs> right. and, and choices. So it's not like this colonial situation where China has control over these countries. Definitely there's economic clout, but every country is entering into these um, investment deals, often not out of, you know, a state of coercion. I think the coercive um, aspects have been in some places overblown um, like even in Sri Lanka which has been um, highlighted as an example of China dead trap diplomacy uh, Sri Lanka has since um, come forward to say that it sought out um, Chinese investment and takeover of its port because it couldn't afford to pay back its debts to a range of countries um, so it's definitely the it's so like tempting to see China as like a new colonial power that is fashioning itself after the recent history of Western colonialism, but it's definitely more nuanced in that um, China is definitely not that, not what you would think of as a typical colonial um, power. Even has those colonial ambitions to to expand and, and take over. Um, Definitely, I think it's more complicated when China thinks that certain territories are already its territories, right. like the South China Sea. Um, you know, the island building, the building bases in the South China Sea, reclaiming islands. You, these are in areas that, you know, Vietnam, like other places, claim as their own. So you could might call that sort of expansionist, definitely, if not colonialism. And Taiwan, the way it treats Taiwan. Um but to China, it does. It's not colonialism to them because they feel like it's already part of Chinese territory. Right. It's not manifest destiny. Right. It's not. It's not the American mm, model. Yeah. But, uh, I, I want to turn for a, a couple of minutes to Canada and China, and then I want to finish by asking about you know this new Cold War idea, whether we're entering one, but first, or, or in one, uh, but first Canada and China. Looking back on Canada's foreign policy 
with China since the 1990s and sort of the days of the, you know, Team Canada trade agreements um, and, and, you know, China, you know, quote unquote, liberalizing or the promise of liberalization. Uh, what has worked in our approach to China and, and what hasn't? Mm -hmm. So Canada um, kind of fashions itself or thinks of itself as like this classic middle power, mm -hmm. um, but it kind of seems, auto seems to see itself as a middle power in the sense that it's weaker or in a position where it can't really do anything with China. Um, definitely that was kind of the narrative that emerged from the Meng Wanzhou case that Canada was caught in between the U.S. and China. Um, but I, I argue that it's a bit disingenuous because middle powers like Canada actually have more clout on the world stage than our size and you know, population size might dictate. Um, you know, remember the G7, like we're in NATO, um, lots of resources that um, are uh, appealing uh, to the Chinese market. Um, but Canada has chosen to kind of, in the past, really focus on expanding trade and economic ties while uh, staying true to, you know, the Canadian ideals of uh, democratic rights. So, but kind of taking for granted and thinking that there could be these dual tracks where economic and trade relations can happen smoothly, even while, um, you know, speaking out in human rights. Um, but what has changed in recent years is that those tracks are not going to be separate. Like China has made it clear that they're not going to, you know, continue business as usual if eco economic relations, when it's really unhappy politically, such as of the case of the, de the detention of Meng Wanzhou. So there were tariffs against canola and pork, um, which impacted Canadian farmers quite a bit. Right. Um, so you can't really take that granted for anymore. And countries seem to be completely taken by surprise about this happening. It's happened in other places. Um, China has banned the Prague Orchestra from touring in in China because its mayor um, refused, um, you know, certain things like not recognizing Taiwan, for example, um, kind of punishing through economic and, you know, blocking of certain industries, um, using economic retaliation as a tool. Um, not that it's alone in doing this. In the U.S.-China trade war has been characterized by kind of tit-for-tat measures, back and forth, back and forth, which impacted Chinese scientists, Chinese students, Chinese businesses, uh, pretty much as much as the reverse of that did to American um, businesses and students and researchers. Um, so it definitely goes both ways. But what has what is the issue is that Canada is kind of lagging behind all of its kind of um, comparable countries in not changing or seeming to have a um, systemic way of studying what's changed with its China relations and offering some sort of concrete plans for how to prevent things like um, hostage taking of Canadians in the future, in the near future, the next time Beijing is unhappy about something. There are still hundreds of thousands of Canadians in the greater China area. Um, what do we have in place to try to prevent any of them from being taken hostage in the future. Um, I think even with the return of the two Michaels, I think these people weren't necessarily feeling like they were safer, like nothing has changed. Um, Ottawa has seemed to signal that it would come out with some sort of new set of 
you know, policy approaches to China, but I've been asking like global affairs like year after year, like month after month. And they're like, nothing yet, nothing yet. And, you know, the latest, I think there was a CP story was that the government doesn't actually plan to release anything or change anything, um, but only intend to make its statements a bit tougher, you know? And like, why is this an issue? Like it affects so many people's decisions. It, it kind of signals that Canada isn't prepared to change anything. And we're the only major country that hasn't made a decision as to whether to allow Huawei into our 5G networks. And, and that's just a general security issue. Um, speaking with researchers, they say that countries like with new technology and often technology that might be owned um, operated by companies that have ties with foreign governments that there should be, you know, some set of uh, regulations around it. But Canada hasn't provided um, regulations that will apply to all countries when it comes to participation in 5G. I'll just read out uh, the last part of the Canada chapter where Terry Glavin, um, he said basically um, the Canada policy in China seems to be don't do anything to upset them and maybe they will be nice to us. Right. <clears throat> that, uh, that, that also reminds me a little bit of our uh, policy with the U.S. <laughs> I'm not, mm-hmm. yeah, I mean, I, I, except for with the, with the occasional caveat, I guess, of softwood lumber perhaps. But. Yeah, I think foreign, Canada's foreign policy in general is, there's not much attention paid to it. It definitely wasn't a major part of our recent federal election no which was just particularly you know this comes up all the time and i always say to sort of people you know it doesn't really determine votes uh, although it can cost mm-hmm. you time uh, but it, it, if there was ever a time where it was going to dominate you would expect it would be now yeah, you even, think right now. and yet it, it no, hardly came yeah, up it wasn't yeah, afghanistan yeah I, I found that surprising as well yeah and, and it, it says something about uh, I guess about how we see ourselves if we don't think that's something as a country we need to push our own politicians on. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, yeah, it was my motivation for, for writing the book. Like, I wanted it to be accessible to everyone and um, including, you know, voters in many countries who might push their representatives to to learn more at least about China or to have more of, like, fact-based uh, policy-making or research on, on China because right now it's there's so much debate and, you know, words, but so little, like, actual concrete action in governments. And, and I mean, that's something I don't talk about much myself publicly because I, I don't know a ton or not, not enough to be useful. Uh, but I watch a lot of what happens, and you can sort of tell when people have no idea what they're talking about <laughs> and when they do. Um, so, so hopefully we get a, a growth in people who know what they're talking about. But I want to close on this point in the last couple of minutes. Uh, you know, there, this comes up. It's one of the uh, one of the quotations in the book. It comes up, and it's a theme more more broadly in geopolitics. You know, are we headed into or are we in the midst of a new Cold War? And if so, uh, between I mean, pr- principally between China and and the United States. Uh, and, and if so, who does that serve and how? Um, I think in if there is going to be a new Cold War, it will probably be characterized by a conflict between Washington and Beijing. Um, I think 
someone characterized a Cold War situation as when every aspect of the relationship is couched in terms of competition. And I don't think we're close to that because it's not, I don't think there's like a lot of people on board in both countries for that to happen. Mm. Um, But when you look at some of what politicians or some, you know, experts, pundits are saying, especially in the U.S., it's like they're out for blood. It's like Mm -hmm. I spoke with people in, you know, part of the military who are actually worried about what's happening in the broader political climate where there's people who are basically pushing for war, like explicitly wanting conflict to take part as if um, China is posing this ideological challenge to America. Um, And often a lot of people don't think it's productive at all because there are a lot of people who are suffering because of China's authoritarianism, like people in Xinjiang, uh, in internment camps, and people in Hong Kong. And having this kind of backdrop of just political um, war of words and accusations and kind of ideological um, conflict um, just really this return to this anti-communist rhetoric, uh, the red scare. Uh, A lot of people don't think it's productive. It's not the way, unless it's often like people don't actually want a war to happen. So what's the point of talking about war all the time? Mm -hmm. Um, Whereas right now there are still um, avenues for diplomatic engagement with China, where if you understand China, understand what makes Chinese leaders tick, maybe you can make some progress on advocating and pressuring um, Beijing on its treatment of its own people and its harassment and abuse of its critics overseas. Um, but I think a lot of this uh, Cold War discussions and this kind of war drum beating that we see in the West and maybe particularly in the U.S. and uh, some p- people tell me also it is happening in Australia that it's quite counterproductive and the people who are going to suffer, who are, whose stories are going to be kind of drowned out in all of this noise is like the people who are the most affected by China's um, authoritarianism. Um, There's no like political will, despite all of this noise, to train uh, Canadian police or American police on what to do when it seems like there's um, foreign police are taking actions to intimidate or spy on or even visit in person um, its critics overseas. Um, So many people have told me that they didn't even bother filing a police report or when they went to police that they weren't even able to give a statement about what happened to them. There's no mechanisms to to investigate or protect them. Um, And this is surprising. You would think that there would be some attention on these concrete measures, but uh, I think all this rhetoric, um, it's almost self-serving in some cases where it's popular. It makes someone kind of get a boost in attention mm-hmm. when they're like, you know, I'm going to be really, really tough in China and do this and do that. But often it's not backed up by any proposed measures that will actually, that are centered around um, concern about human rights or ethics or um kind of practicing what you, pre- what you preach and um, increasing international uh, monitoring and protection of human rights violations and things like that. Well, that brings us to time, but this was uh, an extraordinary conversation. I really appreciate this. Thanks so much for joining me today. 
Well, thanks so much for um, you know spotlighting the book and um, having given me this opportunity to talk about all of these issues. Entirely my pleasure. And and uh, once again, the book is China Unbound: A New World Disorder. Available everywhere, right? Pretty much, you can. Mm-hmm, yeah, online. At I like sending people to independent bookstores if yes. possible, knowing how slim the margins are for <laughs> publishing. With my first-hand experience, so if you look on IndieBound or Bookshop.org, that sends you to the nearest independent bookstore that's stocking any book that you are wanting to buy from an indie seller. Oh, that's fantastic! Uh, well, then I would I'll, I'll echo that and encourage people to to pick up the book uh, that way. And um, otherwise, my thanks as always to Carolyn Smith and to Aaron Reynolds who make the show not just possible, but better than it would be otherwise. I promise you, even though you can't always tell on the other end of it, I promise you it's true. And we'll see you back here in two weeks. Bye.